0: It was done. The killer watched the formidable bulk of Mont Orgai fade into the darkness as the boat carried him away, and heaved a heartfelt sigh of relief. When he had first seen the castle, he had been daunted, afraid he would never manage to broach its defences and claim his victims. He had had to keep reminding himself that he was not there to take it by storm but rather to gain access by stealth and cunning. Even so, it had not been easy, and it had been weeks before he had devised a workable plan. To his surprise, it had worked like a dream, not once, but twice. He could hardly believe his luck. He'd expected the authorities to tighten security after he had murdered Gilbert Millington in his cell, but incredibly, the governor had deemed the prisoner's death a natural one. True, the killer had been careful, placing the body on its side to give the appearance of peaceful sleep, and there had been no blood to reveal the truth. But he had assumed there would be some manner of investigation, given Millington's importance, yet not so much as an eyebrow had been raised. It had been a month before he had dared to rekindle his friendship with the castle guards, Sure, they would remember exactly who had last seen Millington alive and draw the obvious conclusion. But they had been more interested in the free ale he offered than making uncomfortable connections. Namely, that Millington had been found dead the morning after the killer, disguised as a cleric, had bribed them to allow him to visit. His second target had been Sir Hardress Waller, Who was pathetically grateful to the kindly vicar who came bearing gifts of books and fresh fruit? It had been ridiculously easy to dispatch him, as he knelt with his eyes closed, waiting for a priestly benediction. Again, the killer left his victim curled on his side as if sleeping. As he had left the castle, he had been terrified. Sure cries of murder would follow within moments. But there had only been amiable nods from the guards, and a hopeful question about whether he would be in the tavern later. Now, a week later, he was on a ship bound for England. By chance, one of the other passengers was the prison chaplain, a short, fat gentleman in a greasy black coat, who rarely set foot inside the jail, although he was happy to claim the stipend that accompanied the post. Tentatively, the killer raised the subject of two dead inmates within a month, keen to know if there was any worrisome speculation as to what had happened to them. No one will miss that pair, declared the chaplain in distaste. They should have been executed as traitors years ago. They both confessed their crimes, did they not? Yes, acknowledged the killer carefully. But surely it is odd. That they should breathe their last within a few weeks of each other? Not really. The chaplain settled himself more comfortably against the aft rail as the lights of Gory Harbour disappeared into the evening gloom. Neither was young, and both suffered from bouts of ill health. They died in their sleep. I saw the corpses myself. The killer allowed himself a small smile of satisfaction. The chaplain's words confirmed that the plan was proceeding perfectly, and it would not be long before all came to pass exactly as he intended. Pudding Lane, London, Tuesday, the 21st of August, 1666. James Hady had uncovered evidence of something dreadful, and he was terrified. The previous afternoon, he had confided all he had learned about it to his friend John Bowles, the grocer, desperate for advice on what to do. Bowles had listened with horror, and had promised to help him devise a way to unmask the culprits. But that morning, the grocer had been found dead in his shop. The parish constable's verdict was natural causes. But Hady knew he was wrong, and that Bowles was just the latest victim in a long and bloody trail of them.